All right, take your Bibles, turn to the book of 1 Peter, chapter 2. I haven't watched the Academy Awards for a couple years. I'm sorry, it's hard for me to stomach the wokeness of it all. But um, I, I read about one of the actresses recently, and uh, I thought I might read this to you. Reese Witherspoon, a successful actress, had this to say about herself. She said, I don't watch any movie I'm in. It's horrifying. Uh, I'll just focus on something stupid like, dude, I have the biggest, goofiest smile on earth. And when she really feels bad about herself, she said she will Google her name. She says, only in very dark moments, moments of self-loathing, do I type my name in Google. You never read anything positive. You always go straight to where they say something nasty about you. You're fat, you're ugly, you're tired, you're worthless, you don't have a career anymore. It's just an affirmation of every horrible feeling about yourself, end quote. It got me to thinking, is there a difference between our true identity and what we think of ourselves? You know, we have this objective reality of who we really are and then what we actually think of ourselves I think there's a difference there. I have this idea in my head that may or may not correspond to the truth of the matter. Now, this is not going to be some self-therapeutic sermon, but I, I think it's a legitimate question because we all live there. Uh, this is something that's real for all of us. Uh, what is your identity? Uh, is, that, is that defined by the state you're from? Does your race define your identity? How about your annual income? Or maybe the car you drive. You know how you feel when you get that new car. You just feel like, you know, I'm a little cooler. I'm a little more hip. Now with this vehicle, right? Um, how about the amount of education? The home you live in? Or how about your spouse? Or how about whether you have a spouse? Does that go into your identity? Here's one. How about your weight, your height, your health? How does that influence your identity? Well, I don't think these are a part of the definition. I really don't. Uh, my identity, I think, is my true self. But I think from a biblical perspective, those things are just I just mentioned, they can be influenced by my identity, but they don't define it for me. We could say it this way. My identity is objective, but my self-image may or may not be objective. It may or may not align with my true identity. My identity is fixed with what God says because uh, he gives me a God-given identity. That's true as a Christian. But in the real world we're all in, the culture defines us. Um, negative parenting, I won't have you show your hands. Um, bad self-talk We've all experienced some of this, right? Uh, 
something somebody said to you as a kid that has stuck with you your whole life, right? What's going to take the lead on our identity? Those things or what our creator says about us? I mean, most of us have programmed ourselves based on what others have said. For instance, maybe a parent or teacher said, can't you use your head and think for yourself? What's wrong with you? Or you're just lazy to the bone. You'll never amount to anything. Or another D, that just shows what an idiot you are. Or I'll whoop you for stealing those cookies. What are you, a thief? And sometimes you never forget those things that are said to you. Maybe people have said other kinds of things that have stuck with you like hook, line, and sinker. You've surmised that this is just who you are. That this is just normal. And nothing's going to change it. Is that true? Uh, you could say to yourself, you know, I'm always late. It's just in my DNA. Or I'm Irish, and therefore I'm just naturally going to blow up. Uh, I'm a man. I don't show any emotion. I'm a child of an alcoholic. Therefore, I'm just going to have this low self-esteem and problems in relationships and blah, blah, blah. Now, I don't think it's going to take a rocket scientist to figure out that when you think those things about yourself, that that's going to have a correlation on our behaviors, on our actions, right? It's going to be greatly influential. So I'd suggest that if indeed we have this identity that is God-given, and we'll get to defining that in a minute, if that's true, then aligning my self-image with that God-given identity would seem to be pretty important. Maybe that's at least a nugget of what was meant in Romans 12.1 that said we're to be transformed by renewing our what? We're to think differently. Yes, certainly think differently about God, think differently about the world, but maybe even think differently about ourselves. I remember in um, one marital counseling session that Janet and I had, um, yes, your pastor and his wife had marital counseling. I've been married for 41 years. We, we wanted to survive, all right? Um, so uh, in one, I had shared about things that I thought of myself, and the counselor said this to me. He said, you are your worst critic. And nobody will judge you worse than you do. And that has stuck with me, that I'm usually so hard on myself. And I meet many people like that. Even though it may not be true, but it's just kind of ingrained. And so you have to work hard at changing your thinking. Now, there's much that can be said about each believer being a new creation in Christ, having Christ in them and having the capacity for obedience to Christ. However, everyone has outward performance that tempts them to define themselves by that outward performance. And Christians do this. You know, there's the world that does it. 
And, you know, and it can be money and all these other kinds of things. Not that Christians don't do that. But there's a Christian version of the outward performance. And depending on what Christian subculture you've lived in, you know, it'll be defined by, okay, um, I'm a person who doesn't drink. Maybe you grew up in a, you know, uber conservative Christian culture. That was the thing. Or here, here's one that a lot of parents struggle with. I'm a parent of exceptional children. That's my identity. Or it could be as simply as I'm at church most of the time and I, I volunteer a lot. I have a gold star. All right? I read my Bible more than most Christians and pray. Or I've spoken in tongues and raised my hands in, in, in worship more than others do. I would suggest that when our self-image is this kind of external behavior, even though it's got, you know, in a Christian context, it's just as fleshly as the culture. Because that's not what our identity is based on. Andy Stanley says it this way, it's living in the land of Ur, E-R. We compare ourselves with other Christians to be holy Ur, godly Ur, or uh, richer, taller, stronger, prettier, the Apostle Paul gave a list of religious accomplishments that he had made in his life. I mean, he would have been a stellar evangelical, okay? And I'm not sure we want to use that moniker of ourselves anymore because it's been so misused, but you get the picture. He, he would have been, you know, a stellar religious performer. And then he said this, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. What do I call all of this outward performance? Well, it's a word that actually means dung. There's another four-letter word I could use, but I want to keep my job. The fact is, is that it doesn't amount to anything. What I don't want you to hear from this message is that, you know, we have to improve our self-image and we can do anything we put our minds to, all right? That's crap. I can use that word and we'll use that one, all right? I think what this is saying is it's all about Christ. Christ is in us. We are in Christ. That influences what we think about ourselves. That influences what we think about the world, about God. You know, in some religions, Eastern religions, they speak of people losing their personal identity to develop this God consciousness. Christianity has a much different view. We discover our unique identity as children of God. Knowing we are secure in him gives us confidence to truly be ourselves in Christ and to utilize our gifting. So just to put it succinctly, we are defined by God and him alone. Okay? Now, here's how it all started. So let, let's build a little bit of a, of a biblical foundation for these thoughts. 
First of all, Genesis 1.27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So we are God's original design. So how can the created say to the creator, you know, I'm self, something different than how you made me? Jeremiah 1.5. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. So God intended for our creation long before we came on the scene. The psalmist said, or as our president said, the palmist, um, 103, know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Underline the phrase, we are are his. 1 Corinthians 6, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. And then Isaiah reiterates, but now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. We are made in his image. He has formed you in the womb and consecrated all of us as believers for his purpose. We are his people, his possession. Our bodies are his. So we could say this, anytime we define ourselves, our true self, separate from God, that makes us vulnerable. What are we to do with this information? Well, let's let the Bible answer that. Colossians. If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with God in Christ. When Christ who in your life appears, then you also will appear with him in Christ. And in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Again, it's not about me and the willpower of my self-image and what I can do when I have the right self-image. It's about aligning with the truth of who Christ is and what that means of me being in Christ and Christ in me. So we have to learn to recognize our self-talk, our cultural influences that do not match the reality of God's objective truth and then align our thinking with that truth. So we reject the lies. We confess believing the lies and we choose to remind ourselves of the truth of God. So when we have a problem with thinking those right things, we could say it this way, it, it, it might be a spiritual issue. And Peter speaks to a group of Christians who are aligning their view of themselves 
with what a world that was persecuting them thought of them. They didn't think much of themselves because you had a world that was pursuing them, seeking to jail them or kill them. And so some just surmised, I guess we're not worth much. Or maybe you don't need persecution. Maybe you just need to not be healed from something or to have a relationship that's lost, that's been severed, or lose your job. And you surmise from this that you're not worth much or that God has forgotten about you. And so what Peter does is that he provides some characteristics of the Christian's life that should dictate the Christian view, all right? So I hope you see this as intensely biblical. Again, I'm not interested in a therapy session. I'm interested in us aligning ourselves with truth, but it influences how we think. So all that's just introduction, all right? Let's get to our passage, but let's all stand as we look at the passage. All right? As a high church would, let's read together. All right? But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Heavenly Father, as we pause to enter into your word, We have a lot of things running through our heads. You tell us when we come together, Lord, that we are to pray. And we're to pray for our leaders. And so, Lord, we we do that even now. We want to remember our president, his cabinet, Congress. They're faced now with prospect of a war in another country. And Lord, there's no way they can satisfy everyone. But would you somehow intervene? Somehow bring wisdom and allow them to look to you for that wisdom. We pray for peace. Lord, we know that in Christ there will be ultimate peace in the future. But I pray that they could find a peace even now. That the millions of people that are going across the border in Ukraine could find that they are still loved and important. Lord, we know that we are blessed with a great blessing privileges here in this country. And one of the chief ones is the ability to worship together freely. We thank you for this. 
I ask that we can take advantage of it today. May we leave here further equipped, confident of our position in Christ and having aligned our hearts and minds to truth. Encourage our hearts today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. The two opening words of verse 9, but you, are contrasted with verse 8, where there's a description of those who disobey the word. The implication is that there are certainly those, and certainly we were in this state as well, that were in a dark state because we disobeyed the gospel. But now that you are a Christian, you are in a much different situation in knowing Christ. And as we stated before, because of this position of being in Christ, no amount of protest or argumentation can change what God has put in place. Now, I can disagree with God, but that doesn't change who we really are in Christ. So even if you don't believe that you are valuable, it doesn't change your worth, right? I've said it before. I could take a dollar bill. I could crumple it up. I could spit on it. I could stamp on it. Uh, stump, uh, stamp my foot on it, but pick it up and still show you what? The dollar bill. It would still be worth the same. So you've been stomped on, you've been spit upon, but the value's still there. People say, well, I'm, I'm too fat, I'm too skinny, I'm too stupid, and therefore I'm worthless. And God says, wait a minute. I made you, crafted you, molded you, chose you, redeemed you, sanctified you. So why can't you appreciate your value? The first truth that Peter mentions that is true of every believer is that you are a chosen race. Now, Peter, again, as we've talked about in the previous times that we've been in 1 Peter, alludes to an Old Testament truth, all right? by paraphrasing a small phrase from Isaiah 43.20, where he speaks of his chosen people. And that was to apply to Israel. But now it's applied to Jews and Gentiles, and particularly those who have been scattered because of persecution. Jews and Gentiles. They are a chosen race. Now, the word is different from our modern usage of skin color. This means common origin, all right? As believers, we have our origin in God, and our identity is that he has chosen us. Christians have obtained this new chosen race, not by physical descent of Abraham as in Israel, 
but by coming to Christ. And all of this was initiated by God. Ephesians 1.4 says, He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Now, Christians have argued about this. They've argued about um, predestination and they split in camps of Arminianism and, and Calvinists. But don't miss the plain truth and the matter that says here that we come to God because he first loved us. Because he initiated the process, right? That's why. Remember when you first found out the love of your spouse for you? Hopefully that was before you were married. But I remember first finding out that my wife loved me, right? That brought a particular joy. Well, remember when you first found out that God loves you? Returning to your first love includes affirmation of God's love and pursuit of you and the wonder of that truth given our own unworthiness because of our sin. And I don't see it as a contradiction to think of worth and sin together in the same person. We have no problem thinking of our children and thinking of their misdeeds and still loving them and that they're valuable so let's not get too smug thinking God is not capable of the same. God invented mercy and grace. Royal priesthood, the priests of the Old Testament were given the task of offering sacrifices to God on behalf of the people. Priests were restricted to a particular tribe of Israelites and they performed temple duties or sacrifices with exactness and were a part of this privileged class to do so. Now in the new covenant, believers are called into a ministry of offering sacrifices to God. And they have access to God that before was just for a privileged few. What sacrifices are we to offer? Well, it says, through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So praise to God is a sacrifice and sharing and kindness that we give to others is a sacrifice and pleasing to God. Romans says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living what? Sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your portion of worship to God. Oswald Chambers wrote, we are designed with a great capacity for God and sin and our individuality are the things that keep us from getting at God. God delivers us from sin. We have to deliver ourselves from individuality to present our natural life to God and sacrifice it until it is transformed into a spiritual life of obedience, end quote. In one sense, you could say this, that because our bodies are a sacrifice, everything we do everywhere we go is to be in the lane of obedience to God, and that's a sacrifice to God. That's part of our worship to God. And daily we have the privilege of fellowshipping with God 
and offering these sacrifices of worship and obedience. So chosen race, royal priesthood, and then a holy nation. Again, alluding to the Old Testament distinction with Israel being God's nation of people. Christians are called a holy nation. Now, this is not an ethnic identity or referring to geographic boundaries, but rather an allegiance of a group to their heavenly king, Jesus Christ, who's, of course, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. So we belong to another nation or kingdom separate from others on the earth, and Christ is our leader. And as holy people, we belong to God in a way that other people don't, and we are dedicated to accomplish his will, his purposes for our lives. So we have this calling into relationship, and we also have a calling into a mission, into things to do for the sake of our king, who we serve. Many of us run around wondering, you know, what's my, why am I here on earth? Well, I'll tell you the main one, to accomplish the mission that God has for you, to obey him wherever you're at. To be a light for him wherever you're at. No matter if you're, you may not be in the job you want, but you still have a mission. We are given a divine mission to follow because of our divine identity as being a holy nation. You think you're worthless as a follower of Jesus? Let Peter remind us, we are pursued and loved by God. We are given access to God for privileged service. We are a part of a group of people set apart as servants to accomplish a divine mission. And then it says, you are a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We are a people of his possession. We are God's special property. The Greek phrase behind a people of his possession conveys that we are significant and precious to God. And therefore, we are an object of his special care. Just as Jesus called the people out of Egypt and out of Babylon, so now we are a people called to where we're living out of the darkness and ignorance of sin to be his people, to live in the light of Christ. And this light is to fill us with the desire to praise him for his excellent grace, forgiveness, kindness toward his people. Paul wrote, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness, transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And as a result of these things, these privileged position for the believer, the most natural response is to live radiating these truths. And so you don't have to answer every question somebody gives you or know the answer. You may not know the Bible frontwards and back, 
But what you can do is that you can tell the story of how God's grace has impacted your life. Verse 10 extends the thought of God's choice for us. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you've not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is a theme taken right out of the book of Hosea, which Peter has alluded to before, where the prophet spoke in these exact same terms. Once you were a people, now you're not a people. People who rebelled against God lived life separate from God, and yet God still loved them. People who were under the condemnation of sin and are now granted the highest privilege on the universe. That's us. We are now God's people. We were once people who deserved judgment, but now we're recipients of blessing. Again, why is this? Is this due because our religious behavior is better than others? Is this due to because we're part of a certain denomination? Is this due because you gave more money to the church than somebody else? Is this because of your skin color? None of that. It was not due to any merit of our own, but it was because of God's mercy, his undeserved favor. My favorite preacher to ever hear was a man by the name of Stephen Olford. I heard him more than once, was able to meet him, a wonderful man, he and his wife. He's now passed away, but he tells the story of Peter Miller, a Baptist pastor during the American Revolution. Miller lived in Ephrata, Pennsylvania, and one of his dearest friends was General George Washington. In the town of Ephrata, there also lived a spiteful troublemaker named Michael Whitman, who did all he could to oppose and humiliate Miller. One day, Whitman was arrested for treason, and he was sentenced to death. So when he heard the news, Miller set out to Philadelphia to plead for the life of his enemy. And after walking 70 miles on foot, Miller petitioned his friend, General Washington, to spare Whitman's life. Washington said, no, Peter, I cannot grant you the life of your friend. <laughs> Miller said, my friend? He's not my friend. In fact, he's the bitterest enemy I have. Washington said, what? You've walked 70 miles to save the life of an enemy? That puts this thing in a whole different light. I'll grant you your pardon. And he did. And that day, Miller and Whitman walked back to Ephrata together. And when they arrived home, they were no longer enemies. They were friends. Jesus walked through the streets of Jerusalem up the hill of Golgotha after being beaten. 
and for much of the way with a crossbeam on his back. Why did he do that? So that you and I could be friends of God. Let's pray.